I never wanted to embrace art, to be a, a, an art gallerist. First of all, because there are plenty of art galleries, and I think that <laughs> I am no one to start to do something in art uh, because uh, you need experience, you need eye. So this is not this has has not been my reference uh, goal for my future. Never say no. I can't say in the future what will happen. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as a home and design director at Departures Magazine, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Before we get started, a little programming note. This is the last episode of season two, but we'll be back in the new year for season three with a lot of great guests lined up and a few surprises. If there was a design capital of the world, Milan would be it. And if there was a beating heart of the design scene in Milan, it would be New Lofar Gallery. What started decades ago as a family vintage rug showroom blossomed over time to become one of the most important design galleries in the world. Not only for its incredible objects for sale, but how it continually pushes boundaries and introduces some of the hottest names in design to the culture. My guest today is Nina Yashar, the founder and leader of this creative enterprise. Born in Iran before the revolution and raised mostly in Italy, Yashar is something of a force of nature and ultimate tastemaker in design. If she says a forgotten architect from the 1950s is hot, they become collectible overnight. If she places a young designer's chair in her gallery on the famed Via della Spiga, they have a sign of approval almost anyone in the industry would kill for. And in 2015, she opened Nilofar Depot, a massive gallery on the outskirts of town in a former industrial space that stages more impressive exhibitions. She's also stretched out her legs with a program called Squat, where she stages pop-up galleries in various homes, apartments, and other spaces around the world, a trend you could say she started. And during the pandemic period, she's been busy with Picked by Nina, an online shop for collectible design at more democratic prices. I spoke with Nina from her gallery in Milan on how she became lifelong friends with Miuccio Prada, her youth as a radical feminist, and the most beautiful homes she's ever seen. So you moved to Milan when you were six. I'm curious, do you have any memories from your early life in Tehran? Yes, I do have uh, very few memories. Uh, the few memories that I have, they are related uh, to the sense of smell. Uh, for example, I, I remember very well that uh, every morning uh, arrived at home uh, the, the amazing uh, bread that it was uh, cooked on the oven uh, uh, with uh, rocks and fire, that it, it had uh, an incredible smell. So often on the Saturday night, uh, we were invited to my grandmother's house. Uh, there were a little uh, joke play that uh, in the lift, they were asking me what uh, we are going to have for dinner tonight uh, through my smell, <laughs> because I really had a great sense uh, uh, of smell. And uh, another memory that uh, is a bit uh, characteristic of my personality, that it, I was trying to escape often uh, from the home of my mother and my parents because uh, underneath of the floor there were the house of my grandmother and I was using uh, to do whatever I wanted. So it was a sort of uh, play to play the ind independence. Uh, I wanted freedom in a way, I think. And what were your parents like? Were they strict with you growing up? So um, my father always thought that uh, the life in uh, in uh, in Tehran 
would have been uh, really evolved in the future. And uh, he really had the great vision, actually, as, as we can see. So when we arrived uh, in Italy, they have been uh, quite uh, strict, but not severe, I would say. And um, as uh, I... The origin of my religion uh, is Jewish, so my life has been very influenced uh, uh, while attending the Jewish school in Milano. This influence, uh, it was very, uh, my life has been influenced uh, in uh, during uh, the eight years that I attended the school uh, during the middle and the high school uh, because uh, I were uh, surrounded uh, in a very restrict circle of people. My life was only the parkour that I did from my home to the Jewish school. And for years and years, I didn't know where I was living in a way because, uh, you know, we were in a way uh, the only people that uh, we were, that I was dealing with. They were only my, the student of my class. A very, very small world. And this, uh, it was for me a big uh, restriction. I didn't like at all. Actually, in the two last year of the high school, I started to to deal with people that they were not Jewish, and I was the first of the of my class that started to interfere with the, the other world, let's say. And and actually, uh, in that period, it was uh, the end of the seventies. Uh, I met some people, and I started to to go to a feminist movement uh, and. and and to start to to see people that they were more politically more politically involved let's say <laughs> were you a radical in the 70s yes 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 i i was quite radical yes uh, and uh, the stories about women uh, in, interested interested uh, a lot my attention so i was very focused on that on this thematic uh, all the important steps in my life they have been uh, in a way characterized uh, of uh, doing important steps, the, the, the most important steps in my life, they were about disputing and contesting the present in a way. So this has been a bit my attitude. Before we return to Nina, a word from our sponsor, Jalou Ebeniste. Jalou Ebeniste are creators of collectible design made in France. Based in medieval village in Brittany, the atelier is led by aesthetic director Sandra Skonlik Jalou and master cabinet maker Jan Jalou. Les Jaloux design their own collections and collaborate with top interior designers from around the world on bespoke commissions for private residences and super yachts. And brands such as Dior, Lalique, and Cartier have all embraced their work. One of the materials that Jaloux specializes in is straw marquetry, as Sandra explains. Straw marquetry is one of the great French decorative arts, a tradition Jaloux is proud to keep alive. The technique is simple and complex, easy to learn and difficult to master and it's very labor-intensive. It requires tremendous patience. Each piece of straw is opened, pressed, cut, and then glued by hand in Jaloux's workshop in Brittany, France, using techniques handed down through generations. In addition to furniture, we've created amazing wall panels and straw marquetry for the world's top jewelry houses, including Chaumet and Cartier. These brands have embraced our dedication to craftsmanship, the precision in our work, and an attention to detail that matches their own. For more information, visit jalu.com. That's J-A-L-L-U.com. When did your parents start to try to get you to go into the business of dealing with rugs? 
I've never had any pressure, actually, from my parents and from my family starting doing business. In uh, in that period after the, the high school, I was um, attending the uh, Oriental Art University in, in Venice, in Foscari. But uh, I was too anxious only to study and I started to work uh, with my father because I wanted to do something uh, in the same time. After six months, I realized really that uh, I didn't have anything in common with his taste. So I decided... Uh, after six months, I asked him that uh, I would have loved to, to open a gallery for myself. It has been uh, my real desire trying to challenge my life, uh, let's say something challenging, something uh, in real, no? Doing something. And um, so I remember very well, it was 1979, I, I found a gallery in Via Bigli that it's very nearby where we are now. And my father told me, I'm going to pay for you the first uh, rent, uh, uh, the first year of renting of the, uh, of the gallery, and after will be your problem. So I choose the, among his uh, collection, the nicest pieces, uh, antique carpets, because he was dealing as well uh, contemporary oriental uh, rugs that I didn't like at all. So, and I started my career with this uh, very little selection of uh, antique carpets. I was surrounded by the biggest and famous uh, dealer in that period, uh, Elio Cittone, Johnny Eskenazi. They were really near a few meters from my gallery. I understood immediately that to be noticed as a woman and a very young uh, person starting business, uh, the only chance that I had, it was to to discover new stories among carpets. So I started, uh, um, I inaugurated uh, uh, my gallery with uh, a very strange exhibition, uh, the the rose in the carpet, and it was a Kilim collection. That uh, in that period the Kilim uh, they were not absolutely well known. So mm. it has been my first debut uh, in my in my my job. And how did you first evolve from from being a rug dealer to to furniture? Why did you make that leap? So every time I did uh, a big choice in my in my professional life, it has happened uh, by chance. Actually, I was I was uh, going to I was used to go to New York uh, um, to buy antique carpets because that period in the eighties and in the nineties, uh, the biggest market to uh, to acquire antique carpets was New York, and I remember very well that one day uh, I was. Uh, I was walking uh, in the street with my agent that suddenly I saw in a window one carpet that I couldn't recognize the provenance. So I went and after three times of questioning from where was coming this, uh, this rug, finally I had the information and he told me uh, Sweden. So I decided immediately that I wanted I decided to, to program, to schedule a trip uh, to Stockholm uh, after two months. Uh, and actually, I did it. Uh, I was supposed to stay, to stay there for three days. Uh, and I found a person who was taking care about me, taking me around. Uh, and he took me in the best gallery of carpets uh, in Stockholm. And, uh, and there, in, uh, I remember very well, in three hours, I bought uh, 21 uh, Swedish carpets. Wow. What, what were they like? These Swedish carpets from that that time. The years of this of the Swedish carpet uh, is um, it was and it is uh, the the nicest period. It was since uh, 
1920 to 1950s, 1960s uh, of Marta Masietterstrom that was uh, the, the the principal uh, artist uh, of this, and then Barbara Nilsson and, and, and other designers. So, and uh, they were very fresh for my eye because they, they were not uh, so referred uh, to the ornaments of the oriental carpet, but the ornaments and the decorative uh, patterns, uh, they were translated uh, in a, with more fresh colors, light colors, and less, uh, and less busy. Less ornamentation. Exactly, exactly. Right, right. So after one day, I wanted to go around to buy more carpets, but he told me no more, no more places <laughs> to go. <laughs> so I said, you, oh. You bought 21 already, so. <laughs> So I I said, okay, but I, I have to stay here two more days, so I would like to see around uh, what's going on. So he took me in a huge garage of 800 square meters uh, full of furnitures. And sincerely, I had time, so I started to look uh, furnitures uh, without knowing anything about them, uh, any provenance, uh, any name, nothing, nothing, nothing. And uh, so I bought... Uh, six, seven furnitures. And when I came back in Milano and I showed the picture to my very intellectual friends, uh, they told me that I acquired <laughs> very nice pieces, uh, the wardrobe uh, of, of the Sanatorio of Alvaralto. I bought, uh, it was one of my first uh, buying, uh, and uh, an incredible desk of Hans Wegener and, uh, and Scandinavian, a bunch of Scandinavian furniture. And when I came back, uh, I did the exhibition, Swedish carpet and uh, Scandinavian furnitures. When when people first walked in the gallery, when you had this new exhibition, what did they say? What did your parents think? This is the great question. <laughs> people, they thought that the owner of the gallery was changed <laughs> before, uh, before having uh, this exhibition in my gallery, uh, there were on French carpets uh, of the 19th century, you know, so a completely different uh, aesthetic narrative, uh, uh, much more um, heavy in a way, much more decorative, no? So, and uh, we could hear very clearly the comments of the people in the street and they were saying, it's not the same owner of before, something changed here because uh, the, the display of the gallery completely changed. <laughs> and uh, became immediately more minimal, few pieces, uh, a, a completely different aesthetic, uh, let's say, that it was not uh, referred to my personality or to what I did till, till, till them. Nina, design and art is always about these long-term support networks, and Mutual Prada has been such a big supporter and a close friend of yours over the years. How did the two of you first meet? Ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I met her for sure in Milano at the end of the 70s, in the 80s. Also because we met, uh, she, was, she was participating like me at the feminist movement in that period. So I met her then. Since that period, uh, we, are, we are close friends uh, and, we, and she's a reference point for me as well. Uh, because I can talk about uh, my professional life. Um, we are very friends. Uh, so it's very interesting to discuss with someone that is always evolving her mind. Uh, this is very di in interesting dialectics. Before we return to Nina, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. Ford Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted 
and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. One of Fort Street Studios' luxurious offerings is the brand's Thai silk collection of rugs and tapestries. It's a rare and exclusive production that involves hand-reeled silk spun into thick cord or soft yarns to create original designs by founders Janice Provisor and Brad Davis. These artistic designs are then produced by a team of women in a remote village in northern Thailand, where they do everything from grow and harvest the silk, prepare the yarn, string the looms, to weaving the carpets. The high-gloss effect of Thai silk makes it perfect for flat-woven creations that are ribbed, cable-knit, or brocaded, or for a more traditional cut-pile carpet, or even an exotic fur-like shack. And just like all offerings from Fort Street Studio, the Thai silk collection can be customized to your needs in color and shape. To create your own heavenly soft Thai silk rug, visit fortstreetstudio.com. While at its core, Nilafar is first and foremost a furniture dealer. Nina's ability to creatively elevate design to something greater is somewhat unmatched. And like any great art gallerist, Nina has helped to discover contemporary designers, names that are now considered blue chip, like Martino Gamper and Beth Ann Laura Wood. I wanted Nina's take on how she made design, well, cool, and how she made the leap from dusting off the objects of the past to launching the careers of the future. And and you're known for your ability to identify emerging talent and, and new talent, and you're able to to nurture them and, and to know when the time is right to bring them into your gallery. How did that begin with Nilafar? Because you were you were doing rugs and you were doing some vintage pieces, fast forwarding a few <laughs> many years. How did how did you start to kind of, you know, collect contemporary and and to represent contemporary design? I have to say that uh, as well, this happened in my life by chance. I remember very well how it happened. It was uh, more than 15 years ago, one, one edition of the Salone del Mobile. And I remember very well, I called Ronarad asking him what he was going to, to show in Milan of his work. He didn't answer me and he told me immediately, I would like that you meet uh, one of my students, Martino Gamper. I said, okay give me his contact. He gave me his contact. And uh, I remember very well, I asked to my daughter, "Ah, please help me to go through his website because I was not able to do it as well. So immediately through, through the picture that appeared on the, on the computer, I immediately felt something, uh, a good vibe, let's say. So I scheduled an appointment with him and uh, I did the a studio visit and we started the conversation and we decided because it was uh, roughly November or something like this and uh, and we decided to do something for immediately for the next Salone del Mobile on April and so I showed uh, his first pieces in my gallery he didn't have any gallery at the t- at the time sincerely what was really interesting that happened uh, after two years uh, I was participating to design Basel at the Design Basel Fair, and uh, Design Basel were looking for, as well them, for new interesting uh, talents. So they asked him uh, to do a live performance, uh, uh, constructing building uh, in uh, two hours and a half, three hours, some furnitures. So at that point, uh, Martino asked me, he was very shamed, (laughs) so he said, Nina, what do you think if I could use some of your Joe Ponti pieces uh, 
because I was acquired in that period 50 rooms from the Hotel Parco dei Principi in Sorrento. And among all these pieces, uh, there were uh, 150, let's say, doors of, uh, of wardrobe. So people, they would have done nothing with this. Uh, but I bought this, I bought 180 headboard and console and, and some furnishing. So at the beginning, I was very shocked uh, about giving him uh, things so in a way precious, no? But after I decided, after a few minutes, I said, yes. So I gave him uh, doors, uh, not a console to destroy for sure. So he did this performance in Basel. And, um, and the title of this performance, it was uh, If Gioponti Only Knew. So using, he destroyed some of these doors, uh, some headboards, and uh, in three hours, uh, he performed uh, uh, realizing uh, three, four furnitures. And for sure, this uh, for people uh, was uh, in Italy something very shocking uh, that uh, I was giving uh, to a designer some precious material like this. Uh, but at the end, the, the Joe Ponti family, they came uh, and they sent, I remember very well, Nanda Vigo to see the the exhibition and uh, and she she was very severe Nanda Vigo and she said uh, Martino interpreted uh, totally uh, in a good way uh, the work uh, the work of Gioponti but what is interesting about this uh, very very old exhibition because it was roughly it was the first edition of Design Basel so let's say 15 years okay. ago but what I would say about uh, this exhibition, this uh, performance, uh, that if you think about that we are talking so much uh, nowadays uh, about reuse, recycling, he has been the pioneer about uh, this uh, attitude because this was totally a reuse of furniture and recycling er furnitures that they were, they were available. And in that years, I as well acquired the 100 chairs in 100 days, that it was his first really body of work, the most important body of work that Martino did. Mm -hmm. And as you know, he reused the chairs in the street of London that they were they were put in the street to go in the garbage. If you think as well, this was a we could say that he has been the pioneer of... Uh, it's a kind of conceptual, uh, contemporary design in a conceptual way that he kind of broke through a boundary into, 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 into fine art in, in a way. Actually, you're right, because uh, the 100 chairs, they went through more than uh, 12 museums in the world. Uh, they have been shown. So mm -hmm. it has been uh, a great acquisition and they are part of, uh, of my collection, let's say. As I'm someone who's covered design for quite a while now, I think you've been so influential in making design, and especially vintage design, extremely fashionable on a level few others can achieve, and in a luxury context. Where does this come from? Is it Milan, the city itself, or is it something you consciously worked on? Uh, the point is that the the fil rouge and the light motive uh, um of my professional life and of my career has always been uh, to discover new boundaries, uh, to discover new things. Uh, and this, as I said, it happened very by chance, let's say again. In fact, I, I, never, I never did the choice uh, of uh, 
collecting uh, and showing uh, mid-century design, uh, it it has never been a rational choice or a scientific choice. I never decided to do it. I just discovered it, let's say, that the big chance that I had, and I was very lucky, I started to treat mid-century design earlier than other gallerists. So, you know, the timing in life is fundamental. So this is... a. Uh, hundred percent sure you could do the right thing but in the wrong moment so I think I was very lucky because I decided to I just got in a passion it was as a fever because my first years of mid-century I only was dealing Scandinavian furnitures and I remember very well that for me was a passion so people like Mucha and other creative person they have I think um, the the same attitude uh, to the life to the work uh, they they uh, they always question uh, uh, their choices so creative people they were ready to buy uh, something that uh, was questioning their furnitures their actual furnitures their interiors so I think uh, I could say that I didn't do for purpose uh, to make uh, fashionable <laughs> furnitures. And did, do you think that from speaking of, of things being considered fashionable, from when you first started with Martino to today, has the culture in Milan changed? Is it more, do people appreciate design more than they used to? Absolutely, yes. Yes, because um, the, the collectible design, the mid-century design, uh, uh, started uh, more than one decade, uh, 15, 16 years ago. And this uh, allowed to people to, they were not so, the general uh, customers or clients, they were not so ready to buy things, uh, even if uh, Milano was the culture, <laughs> sincerely, of the 50s, the 60s, uh, the design, uh, the Italian design, uh, mid-century Italian design was something very dealed uh, through intellectual, among intellectual people, among uh, um very cultivated people, let's say. But now it's very fashionable, as you said. <laughs> when it comes to 20th century design, is there any period left to be rediscovered by collectors? What's next for this part of the market that seems, you know, exhausted at times? I think that um, more than talking about uh, discovering, uh, I think is more important uh, and fundamental to to investigate uh, what happened and what's in what's going on. So I think that the former collectors that started to buy design and mid-century design, uh, they shift their attention now. It means that uh, a range of very selected people that that time were buying uh, design, now they are more interested uh, in rare pieces. So these kind of collectors that started that time uh, now they are more focused uh, in looking for masterpieces uh, rare pieces uh, it means rare pieces it means that uh, one furniture done uh, site specific uh, for a home uh, let's mm -hmm. say joe ponti one unique piece uh, that he conceived the site specific for one residential house or bbpr as well he did very very few pieces so this kind of um, this uh, very selected range of people now they are um, elevating their target. Their demands it's higher. Is that hard? 
Does it make your, is it, is your job, is your job a lot harder now? Because now, you know, people have copied you in what you do. And so now you, you have to find the unique piece that there's only one of in order to get someone's attention. Is that, is that harder? Actually, I questioned myself uh, two years ago about your question. And I started uh, two years and a half ago to collect uh, a bunch of pieces, uh, uh, very rare, where there is not the seriality uh, in numbers, you know? quite unique or two pieces in the world or three pieces uh, or unique pieces. Uh, so... If I would have started now, it would have been very difficult, very difficult. So I am in a way lucky that I had the, the right prediction in collecting uh, two years and a half ago, very rare pieces. They are part of my collection, actually. And if someone came to you and said, Nina, I'm, I'm new uh, and I want to start collecting design, what would you give them three pieces of advice? First of all, trust your instinct. Second, see your pieces in person before you get them. <laughs> Especially now with the internet, that's pretty important. Yeah, Very important because you could have incredible surprise. Not always so pleasant as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the third uh, suggestion, uh, know where your source is. Uh, to get confidence uh, in your source. To go somewhere that uh, has a reputation, uh, has a story. Yeah, I mean, well, especially now because... Not so much in Italy, but especially in France, where antique pieces and things were being replicated and uh, faked a lot. A lot of yeah. them. So it's very dangerous, uh, I would say, nowadays, too. So I think that nowadays the most important thing that galleries could have uh, is the reputation. With Nilofar, your depot has become less of a showroom and more of a destination like a museum. Why do you think this is happening to so many major galleries in art and design, you think? There are many reasons, and uh, these reasons are are connected as well uh, to the contemporaneity of the last year, to the life of the last years, how they evolved. But formally, this is not connected to the timing. I think former a gallerist uh, has uh, an educational uh, role in the life. So to be a gallerist, I think, uh, um, is not uh, enough uh, to um, the the name of under the name of gallerist uh, uh, is not enough to say I buy, I sell, and I buy nice things. Or but as well, showing always uh, uh, new contents uh, and uh, a new point of view, new narratives. Uh, I think is fundamental, and the, and it's part of the educational uh, um, uh, work and role of a gallerist. Uh, after, for sure, I am. I like the fact that uh, the Nilofar Depot is very near to the Politecnico University of Milano. And for me, the biggest uh, joy is to see the students uh, when a group of students, they come and they, and they see in, rea in reality what they, what they study in the books. So this is something very, you feel that you did something in your life, let's say. Feel special. Yes. And then... Uh, I think it's very important, uh, aside this consideration, to have uh, a space like this uh, because it allows uh, principally to me that I want to make real my dreams. Uh, so if I want to, to show a huge installation uh, 
um, as I did, uh, or a huge exhibition, uh, I feel free to do it. I have the space. So this is very important. But in the same time, this allows as well to the designer that I work with uh, to have a reference uh, of work uh, in my space. If they want to do something special, they know that uh, we can talk and we can realize it. You have a, it's a great venue. It's great. It's huge <laughs> for those who haven't seen it. Exactly. It allows you really to express yourself uh, in a bigger scale uh, because uh, a little gallery in the center of Milano is uh, 100 square meter. What can you do? Nothing. If you want to do something special, you cannot uh, realize uh, what you really want. And then last thing, uh, I believe that uh, now that the world evolved uh, a lot uh, in, uh, in a more digital uh, uh, communication, uh, I really believe uh, in the two opposite. Uh, it means uh, to have uh, a big place uh, and to have uh, a very big communication through the social digital networks uh, because I think in the future probably the design fairs, I don't think they will uh, last uh, for they will change their formula I think so it's important as well to have a big space uh, for the communication, uh, to be in the world. And now you're speaking of online, now you have a website called Picked by Nina, which where you sell you know, a collectible design that is at a lower price point, essentially, which maybe 10 years ago, if you if you said a major gallery is opening up a, an e-commerce shop for things under, you know, for under $5,000, um, or even under $1,000, they probably would say like, no, that's not right. That, 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 that's not considered acceptable. Why did you decide to do this? You will be surprised if I tell you this. It has been always in my dream to have collection for young people. And I did this kind of experimentation <laughs> nine years ago that I launched inside my gallery, in my program, a few pieces very affordable for young people. But it has been a disaster, I have to say, because it was too early, first of all, and people wanted to buy only expensive things through me. So uh, I couldn't understand this kind of approach. So finally, during this period of the pandemic, uh, uh, in these two years that uh, for sure every gallery started to, to consider the idea of being more present and uh, to have a bigger communication uh, with the other part of the world, finally I say, Okay, this is the right moment to do something, <laughs> and uh, and I like the fact of uh, um, of dealing with uh, uh, young people uh, and uh, to share a bit of my taste and knowledge uh, and make it available uh, to the younger crowd. And what is something unpicked by Nina that you 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 really think what what sells really well? Is there is there a specific piece that is very popular. Yes, uh, let's say that uh, it's an ongoing, uh, continuously little research. It's just uh, it's just a funny toy that I have in my hand. It means that mm -hmm. I am not so concentrated. Uh, I want to do it in a very organic way, step by step. But um, we sold quite well uh, the Gaetano Pesce vase because now Gaetano Pesce, you know, became uh, suddenly very popular, and. Uh, 
I have pieces since uh, 18 years that I was not selling. Now everything uh, that is named Gaetano Pesce <laughs> is ready to sell. I do not understand this. Uh... <laughs> you were waited and you were rewarded. Um, now I'd love to ask you about Squat, the program where you hold these pop-up galleries um, or installations in spaces around the world, like fully formed interiors. Where did this idea come from? came from uh, the fact that I was very frustrated uh, about the fact that uh, I had many furnitures and uh, I couldn't express myself uh, in a real final destination scenography because the final destination of our furnitures are houses, home. So, and uh, Squat was born before the opening of the Nilfar Depot, actually. It was uh, 2013. So I, I started my, my first squat uh, before having the possibility of uh, putting on a show. Exactly, exactly. So the most amazing uh, squat that uh, I will remember for all my life uh, is the one that I did in Paris uh, in an hotel particulier of 1000 square meter. And it has been a miracle because uh, in 10 days we set up Everything, lighting, uh, furniture, carpets. Uh, and I really believe that it's not enough uh, to sell furnitures on a podium, you know. So I've always been against this kind of, uh, of vision. So I think that uh, different uh, furnitures interfering uh, or crossing uh, or creating synergies, uh, unexpected synergies as well. So I think this... Uh, is much more valuable and gives inspiration to people and people are ready to to see unexpected situation as well. So I think this is very important. It's part of the poetic uh, of my job, uh, creating scenography. Okay, as my last question, what would you consider to be the top three most beautiful homes you've ever experienced? If I were to trust anyone's taste, it would be you. So the first home that uh, really touched my my captured my attention and my fantasy was uh, the house of uh, Carlo Tivioli. He has been a very important uh, fur fur dealer, mm. and his house is in front of my gallery. So I was used to to meet him there, to talk with him, and this house was uh, realized uh, by the architect Tony Cordero. And I remember very well that I was shocked because uh, inside his home there were material used uh, in the airplane, for example. What kind of airplane? Like metal? Yes, there were metal, but another kind of material that it's not plastic that I can't, um, I can't say, I don't know. But I liked the this kind of uh, architectural, uh, architectural architectural elements that they were in conversation uh, with uh, a sculpture of uh, 16th century or with uh, works of modern art or contemporary art uh, or incredible uh, incredible furnitures uh, with uh, with ebony incredible combination of style of cultures uh, and in an incredible modernity structure okay so that's that's one house yes the other mm -hmm. house uh, the other mm -hmm. house is uh, is the house of Miocha Prada in Engadina it is an incredible little chalet what really uh, surprised me how they deal with the with the restoration uh, 
of the place, uh, studying in the past what were which kind of stone were here, there, uh, the detail of the windows, how they were, everything so detailed and so respectlessly about uh, the historical uh, respect for the historical original architecture. And then for sure she put the incredible uh, Russian chandelier or an incredible cage. I mean, things that as well there, they are apparently not in conversation, but perfect, fantastic. And the third one uh, is a house of uh, a private uh, client uh, that I was, uh, I had a big admiration for the work of uh, Mongiardino, Renzo Mongiardino. I liked this kind of uh, Baroque in a way. Very, it's very ornate and very, very layered. Yeah, very layered, but it's so difficult to put some different layers uh, in harmony that uh, this I really think uh, it's, uh, it's the scenography's point of view that uh, it's... It's important. Thank you to Nina and the team at Neil LaFarge Gallery for making this episode happen. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next season.